And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guests John Kessel and James Patrick Kelly on the Coot Street Podcast! I'm, I'm, That's I'm pretty watching. good. I'm, it was great. I mean, and I, I'm watching my, this, I'm doing this backup recording, so I'm, I'm watching the signal, and that, that last syllable just formed a complete long tail. It was wonderful. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, so my good, idea, it's like something yeah. from the Muppet Show, isn't it? But anyway. <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking, uh, we, we, we like Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> but anyway, Gary, we like to think ourselves as the Stadler and Waldorf of science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not made out of, out of plush velvet, oh, are you? That we well, can tell. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things we're just not willing to divulge. Well, on there, but. Well, first of all, welcome to both of you. Thank you very much for making the time to join us. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, you're all getting ready to go to, go to ShyCon uh, in, in two weeks, which should be a, a busy time. It is, yes, indeed. We're, we, yes. we're going yes. to be, you know, this book, the book that we, we, we may be talking about later on in the show... Uh, has just come out, and so this is the 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 window of opportunity, the 17 minutes where it's going to be on bookshelves before it goes away forever, and so we need to exploit that. Absolutely. Well, well, in fairness, then we don't. On Gary, you're going to start with, but we will say the book in, we are going to discuss is Digital Rapture, the latest of your series of anthologies for Tachyon. Mm. Yeah. So Gary, you're yes. Saying. Well, I mean, you guys, how many how many anthologies have you done for Tachyon now? Um, uh, we've done five? five? Yes, yep. I think five. Uh, let's see. Ten. Feeling Very Strange and That's right. History of Science Fiction. Ma- mention the products. <laughs> <laughs> Secret Feeling History Very Strange, Fiction. Rewired, mm. The Secret History of Science Fiction, Kafkaesque, and uh, Digital, Digital Rapture. Rapture. Yeah. And this Feeling Very Strange, I actually taught in my science fiction class year before last. Uh, Yay! It's actually... Done, done quite well, uh, I think, uh, for Tachyon. Uh, been a, been, I don't know if it's been used in a lot of universities, but it's been used in some, and reached, it's reached people who would not otherwise, I think, have read some of those stories. Uh, inclu- yeah, including most of my students. <laughs> but, but the, um, I, I guess the thing that interests me, I, what I like about these anthologies is, uh, being an academic, they're, they're like academic essays that are all examples. Mm. Uh, right, right. Huh. And you have an introduction that sort of makes a point, and then instead of an essay with lots of footnotes saying you should read this story and you should read that story, it's a bunch of stories with a sort of connecting argument. And I like the idea of an, of an anthology as an argument because I've thought for years that all anthologies are arguments. Yep. I, I, I uh, completely agree with that. I think we've consciously thought about our books as arguments. Maybe we didn't at the very beginning, but rapidly I think it, uh, we both came to feel that they were they were, you know, ex- explorations and arguments. In some ways, they were asking questions and they were suggesting answers, but not answers in the sense that we we know all the answers. So that's why I would put it. Jim and I don't always agree about everything. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, one of the things that it it occurs to me is that you know, or we've been accused of is that we've been creating genres or subgenres or trying to define at least or identify genres. And to some extent, I think that's true. And so if you're going to talk about what is a genre, you have to have a point of view about that. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, 
you're you're selecting some in and you're selecting some out, and that always results in an argument. And 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 and, and it's been the case that almost all the reviews of these books have been about the argument. Well. Did they know what they were talking about when they wrote <laughs> yeah, the introduction? Right, right. Actually, it's it is interesting to me to see how the not all people we have we've had generally I think very good reviews, but oh, yeah. we've had some people who have taken strong exception to our books. And uh, I, I, what I th- what interests me about that is the uh, these people tend to have a real proprietary uh, attitude towards these subgenres or <laughs> definitions. They, as if somehow, uh, you know, we all know and have agreed that this is what slipstream is. And, uh, Kessel and Kelly obviously, uh, you know, are not with the program. They, they, they are purblind mm-hmm. and, and, uh, fumbling around in the dark, you know, or they totally misread Kafka. And well, Kafka would be horrified by this Kafka-esque, you know, <laughs> anthology. Although, you know, some of the stories are, oh, yes, they are Kafka. So they, they at, on occasion, they hit the, hit the mark right on the, uh, right, right in the bullseye right in the mark. But other times, they just have no clue. But what's interesting is lots of times these reviews point to different stories as these are the Kafka-esque stories. And the other ones are, you know, mm. make-believe Kafka-esque. So. Well, one of the that seemed to me to be the anomaly among the anthologies, and that it's uh, it's one that deals with one writer's influence essentially, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and this is a completely trivial question, which you don't you can completely tell me to stop asking it, but it's been bothering me all afternoon. Um, <laughs> under what's the rule for forming an adjective out of a writer's name? I mean, why is it Kafka? As I was I was writing an essay on Bradbury for the. Los right. Angeles Review of Books, it's supposed to be up. And, and Bradbury-esque is another word that everybody knows. But you don't right. say Heinlein-esque, you say Heinleinian. Do so, you? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think that's both. right. I mean, you know, what, what is the rule? And esque is, is easy. It, it's more euphonious on many more names, it seems to me. But who knows? Well, it's like you can see Tiptree-esque, but you can't see Tiptree-in. Well, no. Well, and I, and I think that's because of that the 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 end sound of the word Gary rather than anything else. It well, do you say be... Twainian or Twaini Twainesque? <laughs> Twainian, I would. <laughs> we say we say Shakespearean. We don't say Shakespearean. Right. Shakespearean. Stapledonian so, is easy. Uh, the problem is if you say Twainian, you sound like Elmer Fudd. Maybe <laughs> hello. <laughs> I am hunting for a river. <laughs> It's, well, it's, I, I imagine there are, there are some versions where there might be a debate about whether, you know, different versions would be better, uh, different words, but most mostly they seem to fall out pretty easily. Yeah. I don't know why that yeah. would be. Yeah. So I haven't thought about this, Gary. Now I'm going to be lying awake at night. Oh, my God. We called <laughs> well, the book the wrong the, the, time. The, the next obvious anthology in that sequence would have to be Borgesian because it couldn't be Borgesesque. <laughs> right. True. It's true. And true. Borgesian. By the way, John. Kessel S sounds just silly. <laughs> too many S's. Too many S's. Too many So, yeah. so let me ask you guys: How? What's the methodology for doing these books? How do you get started? Where do the, you know, the, the core, point of initiation come from? Well, the first one was, uh, and I should say, several of these ideas, several of these anthologies were um, the I, the brain children of. Uh, the Tachyon folks. Um, 
And so certainly the first one was. And uh, they were hunting around for someone to edit this anthology, this brilliant idea that they had to do a slipstream. And, and I guess I had, I, I think, well, I had worked with the Tachyon folks before, and I had done a, a column, a couple of columns uh, in my Asimov's on the net sequence mm-hmm. about, about slipstream. So they tapped me to do it, and I said, I don't want to do it. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to do it by yeah. myself. Uh, can I get my my colleague who because I thought it was going to be more work than it was and mm-hmm. it, well it was certainly a lot of work but but uh, as soon as I had John on I felt very confident that we could do it and we certainly then had to hash out how it was what it was that that book was about but the next book uh, Rewired was my idea and um, the next book Secret History of Science Fiction the title was their idea but they didn't really have an idea I, I don't they didn't they, know what it was going to be and. Right. I think I jumped on that one with both uh-huh. feet. I wanted to do that one a lot because uh, mm-hmm. you were reluctant, as I recall, uh, to do that book at the beginning. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. Um, well, I think so- one of the things they wanted was they wanted uh, – in some ways they wanted more than one book. And they at, at one point they were still um, angling for a secret history of science fiction that, that you know, we started around 19 – what, 65 or something like that? We started like in se- 70, 1970 okay. or thereabouts. And they wanted one earlier. But, you know, Gary Wolf has sort of like already written the essay for that, so we can't write another introduction without <laughs> plagiarizing him. So I, I thought that wasn't a good idea. Um, and uh, Kafkaesque was, was their idea, was it not, John? God, you know, it's some funny how I can't remember. I, I, I think believe it was. It was. Their idea. I, I, that yeah, was what well, I was, was not sure idea. of. Because I was not as well read in Kafka as, but in Kafka, but John was all over that. And uh, what happens and then, often is they'll they'll suggest something, and one or the other of us will get real enthusiastic about it and sort of drag the other in mm-hmm. by the ears. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting how that works out because it, it, often what happens, it seems to me, is that the book we end up with isn't necessarily the book that they, or even right. I don't know if they have exactly a book in mind. They just sort of th- see these ideas, and we're so. You know, we're like dogs that they throw a couple biscuits out and we go. <laughs> uh. Well, so it's always been my experience that these book that books evolve during, you know, the task of assembling them. That you know, you think you're going in one direction or you can't do something for some reason, and so then you find yourself having to bend and adapt, or you discover something unexpected. And yeah, sometimes I mean, I've felt self-conscious once or twice uh, in you know, in, in in my career, turning in a book that I think is the right book, but not exactly like what they expected. Right. I mean, ha- have you had moments with, with Tachyon where they're going, well, yeah, but this wasn't really what we were looking for. Not really. They've we been, once after, co- after, uh, after feeling very strange, I think they, they were, let's not put too fine a point out. They were very happy with it. It got good reviews. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it sold well. And they basically you would say, these guys know what they're doing. Um, and so we'll, we'll, you know, talk about an idea, but let them go with it. And I, I, I don't think they really care because we've been able to, you know, at least so far deliver books that are interesting. And I think that's one of the things they're looking for. You know, yeah. anyone can do an anthology, a theme anthology of cats. But, you know, <laughs> if we're going to come up with a cat theory, man, that would, <laughs> and they'd be all over it. So I think that uh, uh, occasionally Jacob or uh, Bernie will suggest specific stories. And sometimes, you know, I don't know if we, you know, sometimes we've we've uh, been influenced by them. But mostly it's it's once it once it's in our hands, we basically have 
carte blanche to do what we want with it. And that yep. I really like that. And to me, actually, the process is often a, a case of saying, OK, what can we legitimately say in this book that right. we believe? OK, mm -hmm. or that I believe I, I want to I don't want to put anything in there that I or say anything I don't really believe or at least tentatively believe. Uh, although there, there are times <laughs> when I, I wonder afterwards how much I, you know, the the, <laughs> yeah. the, the process but of making, making a case or writing introduction. Often you, you it's like writing that term paper, just like Gary said, you're writing that term paper and, you know, you got to get it past the professor. And so you have to be able to make a, a case that's that's coherent enough and logical enough and supported enough to to make sense and get you a good grade. But on the other hand, I'm not sure if I always believe everything that it, that's in the in the paper. I was going to say, if you take something like the secret history of science fiction, which is a very interesting piece, because in a way, it's an anthology that takes place in an alternate world. Right. Um, <laughs> you start you start off with the idea of what if Pynchon had gotten the Hugo Award that year. The, I mean, it was the Hugo or the Nebula. I forget which one he was. Nebula. Hugo. Yeah, he was oh, nominated Nebula. for Nebula. <laughs> well, Nebula, right. right. There we go. Um, but, and, and, and then you go on to pr pr produce an anthology that says, well, that writing has happened anyway. The, yep. the, the, right, the, the right. Great, the great divergence that might have happened back in 1974 or whatever it was actually happened anyway. And right. Well, I, I think I think that that's true. That that uh, you know, Pynchon after Pynchon didn't win the Nebula Award, it wasn't like all these mainstream writers who were writing things that are on the borderline of science fiction suddenly said, "Okay, well, forget it. We didn't win a Nebula. Let's not write this stuff." <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, they were they were completely unaware of such such banalities, and so so uh, so of course so they kept writing it, and 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 then on the other side. There were lots of writers in our generation in particular, I think, of who came in who, who you know, Jim used to call us the invasion of the English majors. Uh, mm. And, and uh, you know, we came into writing genre fiction with, a, with a, you know, some of us a real serious academic study of, of literature. So we were read out, well read outside. Not that previous generations of writers weren't, weren't well read outside of the genre, but, but um, I don't know. It just seemed to me that, that, that there was something going on there, although this did involve it. You know, I was, I was. It seemed to me that there was, that the secret history of science fiction makes a case that is credible if you broaden the definition of what you mean by science fiction. If right. you stick with a, a genre-oriented definition, then it doesn't make a very convincing case. It seems to me, uh, because most of the genre, the the mainstreamish writers—I hate to use that term—but most of them don't really write science fiction on the terms that that genreish writers write science fiction. Right. Um, so, although, uh, yeah, um, uh, it's it's interesting though that um, you use pension as a test case, and you wonder, uh, you know, 30 years later, if he might have won it the way Michael Chabon did, for example. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that that, that was uh, that was actually quite an interesting full circle thing that Chabon won just about the time the anthology came out, mm -hmm. and right. maybe it was the year before. So that that it was a kind of like an arc of what thirty years, forty years, almost forty uh, years. Uh, uh, yeah, of of uh, you know, and now it seems to me. I mean, we're going to be on this panel at the WorldCon, Gary, you and I, anyway. Yeah. Uh, where it seems to me that you know there are a lot of people out there writing things that that aren't really science fiction in the way John Campbell 
John W. Campbell would not recognize them as science fiction, but but by some credible definition, they are science fiction or science fiction. Horace Gold might have bought them as science fiction. You know, Ed Furman might have bought them as science fiction. Uh-huh. Or, or Damon Knight might have bought them as science mm. fiction. But yeah, no, John W. Campbell, not so much. Well, yeah. I think also we're getting we're getting a generation of mainstream writers, which includes Chabon, includes Juno Diaz, includes actually goes back to include Doris Lessing even, who who right. have read a lot of science fiction and aren't embarrassed to admit it. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, I, I think this is right. This is, this is a parentheses, but it's 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 kind of an interesting story because uh, I don't know if you were there the year that uh, John at, at ICFA the year that Doris Lessing was guest. My wife became friends with her, and we used to actually. I've had dinner at Doris Lessing's house a few times. I'll, wow! Wow! Uh, no, cool. I, I was not did. there for that one. Yeah. No, but but she was she was sweetheart. First thing, so I show up in her house, and God knows some. Far, far northwest corner of London that even the taxi driver couldn't find. And she sits me down and says, now, tell me, why doesn't every science fiction writer write like Greg Bear? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Doris Lessing. Not, oh, dear. not a name you would have expected oh. to have pass her lips. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> well, we can't. <laughs> Let me ask you this question, though. You, you've done these five books. Have you found that you've had a different perception on the top, you know, the, the theme of the book at the end of doing the book than you had at the beginning that has changed your, the way you've thought about it? Oh, yeah. yeah well, uh, well, I mean, I think one of the things that <laughs> – so the book the book of which we were going to speak and which we have spoken of in, in passing is, yes. is the Singularity book. And, yeah. and this was one where Kessel and I did not agree about – the idea of the singularity, and I, I, I think at the end of the day, we still don't exactly agree. Um, and so for me, the journey was, uh, I really thought this was an interesting thing. I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, the sell-by date of the singularity has passed. It was, it's like, so 2005, and, and you know, Charlie Strauss and, and Cory Doctorow, who are both in this book, are, are, are on the road, even as we speak, flogging a, a book called The Rapture of the Nerds, which I have not yet read. But, you know, the, Charlie, we, I, I asked Charlie to write an essay about for the book, and he said, I'd, I'd be happy to write an essay, uh, but I can't do it right now. And by the way, I, I probably will be a skeptic. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, Charlie Strauss, <laughs> you wrote Accelerando, man. You're, the, you're one of the reasons I'm doing this anthology. And so... Um, and so Kessel's skepticism also has sort of, uh, I mean, I feel much less sanguine about the the nature of the singularity at the end of the day. On the other hand, um, I'm, I'm of a mind of, uh, of, I think it's the second of Clark's laws, which is that something along the lines of if a distinguished but elderly science, scientist is something is possible, it probably is. But if it's that same, if another distinguished but elderly Scientist says something is impossible. It's he's probably wrong, um, and and yeah. I, I think that you know uh, some of the speculation that is in the science fiction stories and the essays in that book, uh, maybe they've got the path wrong. But I'm not really sure that some of the things that we've some of the stories you know have a real insight into the future of of that we that our great great grandchildren will will be living in i i and i, I that, am a, a big more skeptic. so than galactic empires and stuff like that anyway sorry go ahead john no i i i i don't think that it's impossible okay i'm certainly i'm not you know 
I don't know enough of the science of it, but actually it seems to me most of the arguments don't have a f much to do <laughs> with science. Uh, most of the arguments, pro-arguments for, for the, the singularity are not really based in science very much. I mean, things like Moore's law, which is not a law, mm -hmm. okay, it's, a, it's an observation, okay, it's a local phenomenon that's happened for 30 years or something like that, that, you know, processing power has doubled every, what is it, 18 months or whatever they say. Yeah. But, you know, that's like saying that, uh, you know, in 1910, actually, I saw that, I think it was Strauss who made exactly this argument, which I was making a, a decade ago, which I, I want, and he couldn't possibly have heard me say, but, but the idea is that, you know, in 1910, the fastest a human being could travel was 100 miles an hour on a locomotive. Okay. And mm -hmm. um, by 1960, you know, there were men in orbit going 18,000 miles an hour. So if you take that trend curve right now, we're going 40 times the speed of light. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, that, that was a local phenomenon based on essentially on the, the, the creation of air, air power, air, air flight, and then jet engines and then rockets. But then, you know, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that the, you know, the warp drive is going to happen in 1972. It didn't. All right. And so, um, uh, so, so that to me, I mean, I, we could argue about this, uh, and, you know, I don't know whether I'm right or not. I just am, I'm very skeptical for a number of reasons about, about this. It just seems like so many other things like, you know, atomic energy, uh, so cheap that you don't have to meter it. Okay. Yeah. That didn't work out either. So, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, um, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I do have a point I want to get in here in a minute. Well, uh, you know, but actually to me, what, what, one of the things I was really drawn to in the book, cause I think that whether or not it's it's credible as real science, it's interesting as an idea, and it's it's a, a wonderful as a projection for or basis for projection to, to write fiction. Uh, but to to, to me, the, the interesting thing about the Singularity book, which is not really about true about any of the other books we did, is that half of the book is about the idea, and mm -hmm. and and then there it, oh, the other part of it is about fiction. And, and people can argue about the idea. I would just start making an argument about the idea. And I wasn't really saying anything about fiction based on the idea. And, and so, in a way, when people talk about the singularity, they're talking about something that really has nothing to do with fiction. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, in some ways, the anthology, I think, may be picked up by people who are interested in the idea and really don't care about fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I think right. a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of people will be in, uh, will like seeing Vinji's original essay, you know, in, in, in a book that they can have, so they don't have to look it up every time. Um, right. So the ideas are, but but it, yeah. what it does have in common with your other anthologies, I think, is that it's uh, it's about it's about the fiction of science fiction as well as about the idea. In other words, uh, to to sort of defend what Charlie Strauss's attitude is as a skeptic, as I suspect part of what he meant was that the singularity as a science fictional topic is getting kind of old now. Uh, mm. You know, we, we don't mm. really know what's going to happen, and we imagine different ways for it to happen, and he's thinking, well, maybe that particular phase of writing singularity stories is past. I don't think he's necessarily right. I mean, one of the things that you didn't talk about in your introduction, which I uh, would argue about, uh, is that it's not a it's not a particularly new idea. I mean, if you look at singularity fiction in terms of vastly increased intelligence, artificial intelligence, um, you could argue that Child's Childhood's End is, a, is is one of the first singularity stories. You could argue that Paul Anderson's Brainwave is. You could mm. now right. that I think about it, you could even argue Forbidden Planet for that matter. 
Well, actually, uh, that's a that's a good point, uh, Gary. And I think actually, Vinci's essay to me is more interesting when you do other things like say intelligence augmentation. I have a lot more belief in that possibility than I do in the idea that if you put enough, uh, you know, microchips in a in a kitchen, mm -hmm. they'll eventually become intelligent. Okay, uh, I, I you know I, I think that that's the thing that that that's the one that doesn't really you know, seem to me as credible. I think that it's quite likely that, you know, uh, uh, human intelligence will be augmented by either biological or technological means. And, and that to me is, is a lot more credible. And you're right that there's been a lot of fiction. And that one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to include these other things that sort of, right. you know, what anticipated uh, uh, the idea of the sudden break uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, uh, in human history as a result of some, um, leap in, in intellect. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, in other words, I do think, well, actually Bruce, uh, Sterling, he, you ever seen that talk he gave to the long now foundation in the early aughts? <laughs> it's really yeah. pretty funny. It's hilarious. Actually. <laughs> it's a very uh, Brucean, you know, yeah. uh, deconstruction of the idea. Right. Um, right. But he talks about how, well, you know, uh, the invention of atomic, atomic energy was a singularity. Uh, if you wanted to find, you know, something that, that mm -hmm. completely makes a break from what went before. But, you know, we've lived past that singularity in a way. You know, people were saying in 1945, this is going to change everything. And it changed a lot of things, but it didn't change everything. And so, you know, I don't know, you know, this is maybe I'm just a, you know, a Neanderthal here. And, and, uh, and maybe I'm that, well, no, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. I, I, no, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think I was talking to somebody last week about the story, which has now been resurrected as the the only science fictional, you know, anticipation of the Internet was the old ancient Murray Leinster story from, I think, 1946 called A Logic Named Joe. And mm. it is, reading it from today's perspective, rather startling in, in how much he got right. What's equally startling is that when the story came out, as far as I can tell, no one paid any attention to it. No one picked up the <laughs> idea. The reaction was, oh, here's Murray with another crazy idea. Let's publish it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, uh, one of the things about Digital Rapture and about these kinds of stories, however, is how radical they are as fiction is very interesting right. to me. Yeah, that's uh, the story that by Benjamin Rosenbaum and uh, Cory Doctorow, Cory Doctorow. <laughs> is, is hilariously strange and, and almost, in some ways, almost unreadable. <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 it just, you know, it, it, it requires you to really do a different kind of reading. And, and it's, uh, it's, like a, it's like a symbolist poem at, you know, novella length. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just very strange. And uh, I really like it. I mean, uh, um, um, whether or not the technology or the, the prospect of it is, is credible. Well, you well, know, I think one of the things one of the things about that is that the last I don't know. Well, hello. We hello? Lost no, we lost it. We lose. We lost Jim. I'm going to. We lost, lost Jim. OK, yeah, well, he went off. We'll see if well, we'll we'll back. Yeah, let's, let's continue until we can get him back. Uh, um, well, yeah. look, OK, let me ask John, let me ask you this question. Are we back? Jim, are you back? Oh, Jim. Jim. Okay, John, you and I can chat for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, it's, it's interesting to me in terms of fiction, that, and you, you made a very good point in your introduction that some of these stories are hard to read. But the uh, I don't know if it's the longest story in the book, but uh, certainly Ver Werner Vinge's The Cookie Monster is maybe one of the most humane stories he's ever written. And mm -hmm. uh, when I think of my students, that's one I could easily teach to a class of students who don't know much about science fiction. 
um, you, you, you get into uh, you know the, the Rosenbaum like you're talking about, and I don't know if I could get anything out of it at all uh, from my students. It, it, it would be hard to uh, for someone to just sort of bootstrap himself or herself up to reading that story without really being familiar with science fiction. It seems to me, um, well, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, how much of this debate, when talking about fiction versus a speculation, um, yeah. how much of this goes back to the old uh, debate that you and Jim were involved with? I guess it's, I don't know if it's still going on or not. The humanist versus cyberpunk debate from yeah. about 20 yeah. years ago. Well, if you Is remember that- uh, back then in the 80s, uh, Jim was, I think, you know, he was in the Mirror Shades book, you know. And so I think he's always been a little more comfortable with a lot of these things than I have been. I tend to be a literary intellectual, although I have a degree in physics, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, I tend to be a little skeptical. And um, so, yeah, I think there's always are these movements uh, in science fiction where I used to say to Bruce that if we were ever driving in the car together and he was driving the car that he would, the, and the light turned from, you know, green to yellow, my instinct would be to reach for the brake and his would be to hit the gas. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, uh, and I think that that's, you know, Jim's a little bit more like that than I, than I am. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, actually the one thing I would say about science fiction, there's always been a kind of aspect of science fiction that it's not it's it's in service of ideas. It's fiction in service of ideas. It's not ideas used to create fiction. OK. And uh, right. and so it seems to me singularity fiction falls under a, a long tradition of that kind of thing, going back to, you know, Wells and Campbell, uh, where yeah. you had stories that were, you know, there to put forth uh, evolutionary theory or to put forth, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, engineering concepts of space travel or whatever. One of the things that uh, that that makes me it fascinates me is one of the things that fascinates me most about modern science fiction is can you do that kind of strongly idea-based, strongly disorienting, uh, far future kind of fiction with fiction which is which is very literary, very sophisticated. Uh, I'll give you an example because I just finished reading it and uh, it's the new M. John Harrison novel, Empty Space. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, which strikes me as being utterly brilliant in all sorts of ways because he's got what could very well be a D.H. Lawrence novel going on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's the kind of thing that Mike Harrison does with the far future, uh, just constant invention, constant uh, reference to arcane physics, the whole Kefahuchi track right, thing, yeah, which right. I don't understand. And, and he brings this together in one novel, which somebody like me thinks is absolutely great. I'm wondering if I took my science fiction geek friends and showed them the chapters that are more or less domestic near future chapters about a woman and her daughters and their problematic relationship in a suburb of London. Uh, The geek students wouldn't like that. The students who would like that would be completely disoriented when we were off in uh, Nova Swing territory. You see, I I haven't read that one, but that sounds a lot like Light to me. uh, It is. It's it's actually a sequel both Light and Nova Swing. Yeah, so because he had that sort of same uh, dichotomy going on in light, it seemed to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, Harrison's interesting in that, and uh, there are other writers like him, I think, who, well, who, uh, I guess what I would say about that is that, and he's carrying on in some ways a tradition of science fiction that that I would hate to see disappear. I mean, I don't think you're going to see that book from Juno Diaz or Michael Shaban. Okay, yeah. uh, those guys won't write that book. 
And and uh, I think someone has to have grown up with science fiction and all its, you know, glory and and uh, 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 its its limitations in order to write that book. And and I would very much, you know, much as the fact I'm a literary intellectual, such such as I am, uh, would hate to see that go. Uh, so that that you know, the idea that because science fiction is different, uh, the or the at least the classic stuff that comes out of the the magazine tradition is is different, uh, um, and and it's valuable, uh, not for the same reasons a work of literary fiction is valuable. Uh, it's really weird for hear myself say this because this is something I argued against with Bruce Sterling back in the in the eighties. <laughs> but but I you know I I feel that there's something there that's not it's not the same. I used to think that that all fiction is all the same, and and I don't think it's true. How, how do you think science fiction is different? Well, you know, uh, Paul Paul Whitcover's review of the Secret History of Science mm-hmm. Fiction tried to make that case. I think, and he made a good case for it. Yeah. That uh, that uh, uh, here's a, here, a simple way of putting it is that mainstream writers will treat the science fiction idea as a source of psychological insight or a source of metaphor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, a science fiction writer will treat treat the spaceship. It's a spaceship. It's yeah. made out of metal. You know, it works by engineering rules. OK, it has certain limitations that it can and cannot do. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, a literary writer doesn't think about how the spaceship functions. Mm. Uh, it, it's not really uh, something that he cares about. Uh, so um, uh, that that to me is is a, is a fundamental difference. Uh, you know, when uh, when. Uh, uh, T. Boyle writes Descent of Man, which is about a love affair between a, you know, a great ape, a, uh, a woman, a primatologist and her boyfriend, uh, the, the triangle, love triangle. Uh, you know, he doesn't really care about what great apes can and can't do and how they sign language and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, Pat Murphy, when she writes uh, Rachel in Love, you know, really, right. Right. really wants to get that stuff right. OK, <laughs> and it's a different sensibility, it seems sure. to me. Sure, sure. Oh, we, we do seem to have lost Jim. We do, and I've just been trying quietly in the background to get him back, and uh, with with no great f- good fortune at this point. Um, I don't know if we want to attempt to stop and then start again and go back, or whether we'll just continue on and hopefully he will get back. But I tried emailing him separately. Sorry, everybody, for this in the middle of the podcast. But uh, okay. yeah, he seems to have disappeared. Well, you know, he lives in that state out there in the countryside, uh, <laughs> up in New Hampshire. So live, live free or die on the Internet. I think that's what they say up there, isn't it? Uh, so, can you hear me now? We can. Oh, Welcome yeah. back. All right. Yeah, good. I'm, I am, I've been listening to this with great I, – the management makes no um, – uh, does not necessarily agree with the, uh, the opinions expressed by the co-management. <laughs> You're on, pal. This is tell, your tell him I am wrong. Tell him I'm wrong. This is what this is what we do a lot when we're editing these books. Okay. It's, yeah. Uh, it's kind of, there was that panel we had at ICFA about. I think it was about the secret history, and suddenly in the middle of the panel, we sort of broke out into an argument about what was the book was I remember about. Remember that? Yeah. 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 But I, so, I definitely think that you know you summarized uh, the wit cover argument, which I think is is an interesting one. But it takes a very it puts science fiction in a very small box. And and uh, the argument that we make, I think, in the secret history is that the box that science fiction has lived in uh, is is possibly um, not good for the genre and not good for its readers and not good for its writers. And so maybe we should make 
look at a bigger box. I mean, it's the same thing that where people are talk about the road and say, oh, my gosh, well, why didn't he read Canticle for Leibowitz? Um, and that's a good question. You know what? But but there is a huge audience of people who are smart, who have read widely, who like that book a lot. And and the fact that it is a post-apocalyptic book uh, is and that it had a wide audience and a movie got made of it. And it was for whatever you whatever you think of it for yourself as a reader. It was a well-written book. Um, so if that's not science fiction, then what is science fiction? Um, and, and if these other kinds of writing where there's a there are astronauts uh, looking down on the Earth in the future uh, and it's oh, my gosh, it's Don DeLillo. Well, that can't be science fiction. It's the same thing where the critics were promoting Ursula Le Guin and Kurt Vonnegut to literature because it was obviously well-written, so it couldn't have been science fiction. Well, that was uh, the old poem. Wasn't that the poem by, it was either by Kingsley Amos or Robert Conquest, SF's no good, they bellow till we're deaf, but this right. looks good, well, then it's not SF. Um, well, I, I think uh, what I would say about that, I I'm, I'm actually don't completely disagree with what Jim's saying. Funny, it's mm. funny, he's making my argument and I'm making his here. I know, uh, <laughs> good work. But uh, Bruce would be happy to hear this. Yes. But uh, uh, it seems to me that it's not just a matter of see the problem with the little Kingsley Amos Robert Conquest poem is that it it it, it thinks of good, the term good as a as a unitary definition. Yeah. Okay, and uh, I would say that there's different kinds of good, right. and uh, and so. Uh, I, I I responded to Whitcover's review saying, yeah, Paul, uh, you know, uh, your review is right if you go by a rather narrow definition of what science fiction is. But science fiction hasn't even before this before the science fiction magazines were in, invented uh, and before Campbell tried to sort of like uh, put everyone in a sort of a military order. You know, you put your yeah. toes on that line, stand there, stand up straight. You know, uh, you're going to extrapolate. You're not going to have anything impossible. And uh, engineers are going to run things. Uh, you know, there were lots of science fiction stories before that for 100, 200 years that had nothing to do with that vision of what science fiction should be. And mm -hmm. so the fact that we have uh, more and more stories now that also have nothing to do with that vision uh, is not surprising to me because the magazine era was just a sort of, you know, passing phase. Uh, but I don't think science fiction will die just because the magazines do. It'll just well, be different. Yeah. An, an argument I've made at the risk of possibly embarrassing Jonathan is that <laughs> of, the, of the three major uh, year's best anthologies, I mean, you've got Jonathan's year's best science fiction and fantasy. That's an argument right there. Uh, right, absolutely. Says this large box that includes these two identifiable genres and a lot of stuff in between, as opposed to David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer's anthology, which avowedly says science fiction is a box, we like the box, we think it's a good box, yep. and these are stories from the box. <laughs> and, and Gardner's, which is science fiction is a box, but there's good a lot of good writing that sort of is on the outside edge of the box, and I'm going to include some of that too. Right. See, I would have said Gardner's argument was that science fiction is a very, 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 very big box. And Hartwell's yeah. argument is that it's really quite a clearly well-defined box, and you really should not go outside of it at all. Mm -hmm. you know. Right, um, right. And that it's, narrows it down. But anyway. Well, in, in one of the introductions to Hartwell and anthologies, uh, just a quick footnote to that, in one of their introductions, they say that genre boundaries are good. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, they, they, they can be. I mean, anything that gives you some form to work within can be useful. It's only when they become unnecessarily limiting and prevent you exploring and expanding what you're doing. Because surely, well, you know, the genre boundaries of 1939 are different from the genre boundaries of 1959 and 70 mm-hmm. and 99 and 2009, and that's what you'd want them to be. Otherwise, you know, everybody would would be rewriting the cold equations indefinitely and forever. Mm-hmm. So, well, so I, mean, know, I, I mean, one of the things about this is that if we use Clute's term of fantastica and and say that science fiction is a subgenre of fantastica and and... And let's and maybe what we should say is Campbellian uh, idea science fiction is a subgenre of of of, uh, of Fantastica, but uh, Don DeLillo and Jonathan Lethem science fiction is also a subgenre of science of Fantastica, but it's also a kind of science fiction. But it's not that whatever adjective you want to put in front of science fiction, yeah. Campbellian or or American or or idea bound science fiction you know then you're then you're inventing whole shelves for your library and creating millions and millions and millions of jobs for english majors but nonetheless i think there's there's a there's a to, to say that science fiction is one thing is to tell me that when i sit down and write a story and say i think this is science fiction but hartwell says no and and gardner says maybe and 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 Jonathan says, well, but it has a if it has you know magic in it, it's still science fiction. Don't tell me these things. It's it's bad for the writing. It's bad for the reading. I think. I think it can mm. be. I just read a book called Aleph the Unseen by G. Willow Wilson, which they're talking about around the, sh- the place at the moment, and it opens with re- a reference to you know sort of the jinn and the writing of a manuscript in the Middle East. It progresses to a chunk of something that could have almost come out of neuromancer about a young hacker trying to write code so that he could change the local area goes back to a arabian religious slash fantastic kind of environment and then comes back to a a a non-fantastic conclusion and the story holds together and it all makes sense in terms of how the science and the the non-scientific elements or non-science fiction elements of the story come together without it ever seeming to become an issue. And it seems like that's much more closely the future of the genre that we're looking at than the one that grows out of a Cambalian worldview. Right. I think. Or, I mean, that just suggests the... Yeah. It suggests the, the Ted Chang story that won the, the Hugo and then uh, won a bunch of awards anyway, the time-traveling uh, uh, Arabian night story. Yeah. The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate. Thank you. Yes, right. I think which which really ha- had that that thing in, embedded in it, where even if it read like fantasy, it had a science fictional substructure and argument and worldview to it, mm-hmm. which I think was what right. made actually, the story Ted, interesting. Ted is a Ted is a good interesting case of this because he often will deal with things that are not scientifically possible, but he will deal with them in the in a with a kind of science fiction attitude. Okay, uh, something like uh, you know his very first story, uh, Tower of Babylon. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's sort of like a Campbellian science fiction story that might have been written in, you know, in in Babylon. And I think somebody, I forgot who it was, described it as the first Babylonian science fiction story. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you he's know, done it consistently. He will go inside the worldview of a fundamentalist Christian. He will go inside the worldview of a, a 19th century alchemist, uh, Kabbalist. And right. within that worldview, he writes Campbellian science fiction. 
Right. That's right. Although I think a lot of people who read it don't recognize that. They don't see that's what he's doing. That's what we see, see him doing. Yeah. You know, it's that's it's interesting. I'm actually Ted has a readership that has not much to do with science fiction as well as a readership that has a lot to do with science fiction. It's really interesting to me the people he reaches that but it's don't normally read stuff. Yeah, an interesting footnote to that. I was teaching a class here in Chicago at the Newberry Library for a group of high school teachers uh, who were teaching advanced placement classes. And I actually uh, used, um, oh, exhalation as one of the stories. Mm. And, yep. and from a science fiction reader's point of view, exhalation, it seems to me, very much depends on recognizing the second law of thermodynamics being rediscovered in a completely different kind of universe. Um, <laughs> and... As a matter of fact, I mentioned that in review, and Ted spent a half day telling me that I had spoiled. Uh, that was a terrible spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Ted, no. That's great, Ted. <laughs> high school teachers uh, who are very bright, very nice people. They're doing the kinds of things I want people to be doing in high school. Half of them had no clue whatsoever that the second law of thermodynamics was involved in that story, and they loved it anyway, which yeah. taught me something. It taught me. That is, if a story works really well, it has to work well for people who don't get it. Right. Yeah. Huh. Or who get it only huh. as a story. On one particular level, I mean, it's like um, my 70-year-old, 74-year-old non-science fiction reading mother picked up um, The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate and loved the story. Absolutely right. adored the story, but had no idea that it was about the second, well, that it was about anything more than the Arabian tale on the surface of it. Right. And, and it does work on that level. Um, I'm curious if we talk about you know within the genre science fiction worldview as opposed to how science fiction is seen outside and everything else, could the singularity worldview have exist, existed outside the Cambellian worldview? Because it seems to me like it's inherently the child of the, a Cambellian worldview. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, you know, I think one of the things to think about is that the the singularity, although although you know we tend to think of Werner Vinge as the godfather of the singularity. This guy, Ray Kurzweil, um, who has uh, very little connection to science fiction, he's the one who has had several bestsellers predicting this over the last several years. And so, I mean, I see the singularity fiction as coming more out of the technophile, mm -hmm. uh, geek boy, geek girl, uh, internet crazy, you know... Uh, uh, I, mean, I think they're looking for a vision uh, that that is achievable by today's technology, a way to the a path to the future that uses today's technology. And so, uh, if you look at you know what we were looking for when we were kids, we were thinking, well, gee whiz, there'd be people on the moon and people on Mars, and maybe we wouldn't go, but our but our our kids would be there or our uncle or our cousin Fred would be there and wouldn't that be cool that'd be the future now nobody thinks vanishingly few people think that anybody in the next you know 100 years is going to be living on Mars full time and having you know living in domes and doing the mm -hmm. whole science fiction thing that that to me almost all of the science fiction from 1950 to 19 let's just say 85 about space is much 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 less uh possible than any of the singularity fiction 
I mean, to me, all the space fiction, no matter whether it's space opera or near Earth, blah, blah, blah. I mean, uh, and, and I put it to John. You know, John is busy working on a novel that's set on the moon. You know, do you actually think that, uh, you know, there'll be a moon colonies? Uh, I mean, I, it's a great idea. It's a great setting for a for a fiction. But is it a, an idea that you actually believe in? I mean, I, I actually think that some of the ideas that are in the singularity fiction are more believable than the science fiction we would say is, you know, the core science fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the singularity comes from. People who believe in it can see a way to that future, and nobody's seeing a way to living on Mars, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think that there's a, a, that it, another way I would put that is that, um, you know, that space travel, solar colonization is, uh, at least in the in the way it was portrayed for so many years, is yesterday's future. It's not today's future. So, right. uh, you know, I actually, I take your point on that. Actually, it's something I've thought about when writing this book. And in a way, uh, in a way, often I think that people who write science fiction often are writing in a, in a kind of traditional form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you uh, go. Yeah, a traditional form. Uh, the space uh, colonization story is a is a is a form now. It's become right. a kind of uh, sure. uh, you know a mm -hmm. literary form rather than a technological extrapolation. Um, right. Like the ghost yeah. story. It's a ghost story. Okay. Well, it's, it's it's the 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 paradigm for science fiction, the Campbellian paradigm. To go back to the point that Jonathan was making was always an engineering paradigm. I mean, Campbell's mm -hmm. astounding didn't have a lot of startling new scientific discoveries. It had better and better and better engineering. We will figure out how to go to the moon. We will figure out how to right. build colonies there. And uh, that is economically, interestingly enough, parentheses, the only novel that predicted, that I can think of, that predicted that we would eventually give up on going to the moon was Frederick Brown's The Light in the Sky, or Lights in the Sky or Stars, uh, which basically... Huh made the argument which our society has made. That's too expensive. We can't do that. That involves billions and billions of dollars. Um, whereas information technology advances are comparatively really cheap. Mm -hmm. Well, I, really I think actually, I think that that's, that's right. I, I, I do think that space colonization is still a possible future, but it involves a lot of changes and differences from what what it was portrayed as being, you know, 40 years ago. Um, I also think that people don't won't do it for money. It's not it's not something that makes any sense to do it for money, uh, unless there's some vast uh, change in the economic uh, prospects of it. Uh, right. um, so uh, so they have to do it for other reasons. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so, well, so it, it whether you, yeah, it depends you know, on whether we believe in human destiny is to get off the planet and you know no, I don't know how you practice that I'm talking about like you know uh, I mean why did people come why did the shakers come to the United States they didn't come here to make money okay <laughs> they didn't come here because they were going to really uh, get rich by coming here they came here to get the way away from Europe and yeah. and so you know there are other reasons for human behavior that are not economically determined uh, yeah. uh, I now I, I think that <laughs> I think that uh, the singularity stuff, you know, I guess I, you know, I, I, I'm waiting for someone to give me, uh, 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 you know, I, I, it's going to involve neurology a lot more than anybody who writes these stories seems to think. Okay, uh, <laughs> you know, no one even right. talks about neurology, right? Uh, uh, 
they're going to have to understand how the human brain works before they can. Uh, that's my opinion, you know. The, the, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it, unless there's a map of the brain, this whole you know uploading thing is just you know it's 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 fantasy. But you know, and, unless we unless we find a way to go faster than the speed of light, which <laughs> there's never going to be a colony on freaking Alpha Centauri, you well, know, ever, A or B. <laughs> who can ever see there being a colony on Alpha Centauri? The thing is, though, is it more believable and i think it is to see a world where charlie stross's accelerando possibly minus the uploading kind of thing kind of happens because i'm not convinced the uploading stuff will ever happen uh and you end up with what was um bruce sterling's version of i guess space opera which is tiny little you know remote operated robots are going to be all over the surface of mars but we never will because Mm -hmm. as as romantic an idea is as it might be it's not actually a practical thing to do for for people right. who evolved and are designed to live in this biosphere as opposed to that one. Right. right we're right. gonna have to. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, it's hard to argue with. Let's put it yeah. that way. The, 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 okay, uh, uh, Jim and John, do both of you, okay, given this argument, this is something that uh, Jonathan and I have talked about before on the podcast, although not with Neil himself, but. The project that Neil Stevenson has going, which basically argues that science fiction has abandoned its mission of inspiring future technologists and future scientists into big technology projects, Um, that to some extent, if science fiction decides to move in the direction of, uh, let's just figure out uh, Greg Egan-esque ways of uploading minds into tiny tin can shaped uh, (laughs) missiles, one when you have a story like that in your collection. Uh, yeah, is, right. is, is that abandoning its, its its responsibility to sort of model the future for for budding scientists, as Neil suggested in that one lecture of his? I haven't heard that oh. lecture. It's interesting to me. Uh, article in the uh, World Policy Review, I think. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, my my feeling is that uh, actually, I think singularity fiction is in a lot of ways a reflection of social anxieties that we have and and sure. uh you know uh the i mean uh, i don't want to say it's all just uh, uh you know, some kind of psychological compensation or anything like that but i i feel that you know there's a lot of people who look at the uh certainly in in the united states uh uh and maybe in europe as well see and see that the way things have gone the, the sort of primacy of of western europe and and north america ha, is is passing or they fear that it's passing, and so they're looking for a breakthrough to some other way of of getting to the future. And singularity fiction pr- presents that. And I, in other words, I don't know that it's based necessarily on technological. It, it, it's it's based on technological possibilities, but it's also based on other things that are not about the technology, which is true of any science fiction. It seems to me all science fiction is always. Uh, reflecting these things, often unconsciously, uh, uh, whatever's going on at the time. Um, so, so uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. In other words, I mean, I think that what what it sounds like Stephen is saying, Stevenson is saying, is that science fiction is supposed to be uh, about, you know, projecting the real future, and it can do that. But uh, as Gary points out, often the futures we project are not don't have much to do with the real future. Um, you know, the other thing about this is, is I totally, I totally 
am in sympathy with the notion that science fiction has not a responsibility, but in order to be a viable kind of literature, there has to be hopeful futures. I mean, this is something that Stan Robinson goes on about, mm, and, yeah. and, and I agree with him. You, you know, if, if, if in fact the future that you describe is one that nobody in this world would ever want to live in, even if it's rigorously extrapolated and, and, and mm. you know, based on current trends, uh, it, it's, it's okay to write those stories, but that's not the only kind of story that needs to be in science fiction for science fiction to survive. But I take issue with the idea that, I mean, I've, I haven't read this. I, I think I've, I've looked at this and I've seen summaries of it. But I take issue with the idea that, that, that science fiction of old was about big science. Science fiction of old was about guys like, you know, in, in Delos D. Harriman, you know, you know, having a guy build a spaceship in his backyard, you know, uh, it was it was not big science in the way that that, you know, the the linear accelerators are. It was more individuals who had brilliant ideas, found ways to implement those ideas technologically. And and to some extent, that is a fairy tale too. We know now that big science is the way to go. I mean, you may have mm -hmm. a theoretician who can come up with a brilliant idea, but no theoretician is going to build a time machine. You know, if a guy, if, if, if some hawking of the future figures out how to build a time machine, he's going to have to have the government of Portugal help him, you know, <laughs> do it in his backyard or, or IBM or something. And so, uh, and does that kind of, story which is more based in realis realism of today's world does that inspire people to go to MIT I don't know to be part of a, a cog in a huge scientific team I don't know maybe it does maybe the, maybe NASA is in fact the you know the 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 paradigm for this kind of writing I don't know well to defend, uh, just to defend Neil for a minute and he's doing this hieroglyph anthology which is supposed to I guess um illustrate this uh, what he's talking about is not time travel because time there, there's no feasible way that anybody can think of to invent time travel he's sure. thinking about writing about achievable technology if you were writing yep. about a moon rocket in 1950 uh, mm -hmm. you were writing about something that at least in some vague way was achievable technology if you read rocket ship Galileo uh, in a right. way, that lays out a pattern by which you build a rocket in your backyard and eventually you end up in the galactic war. And you can see <laughs> the stages from here to there. <laughs> and and, and yeah. some in his theory, which I don't know is true at all, although John W. Campbell used to certainly believe this was true, uh, yeah. was that some young scientist is going to read about a rocket to Mars in 1950 and think, I could build that when I grow up. Yep. In other words, the question is achievable technology versus technology which is simply appealing as a kind of literary metaphor or metonymy. Right, 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 right. Well, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's saying that science fiction is really about real things. It's not just the stories uh, of power or, or metaphors of, you know, uh, uh, of, for the present. It's really about the future. And, 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 you know, even if it doesn't come to pass, it's, it's, its job is to try to imagine a real future that we can get to that's connected somehow between now and there. Actually, this is very much like Stan, Stan Robinson. Stan Robinson, I think, really. Stan Robinson, yeah, he's very good at this. Yeah, and, and he, you know, he makes a big point about how science fiction story of the future is uh, implicitly and so often explicitly makes a connection between where we are now and where we are in that future. Uh, mm. And so trying to imagine that, I think, is a worthy enterprise. Uh, right. it's, it's, it takes a certain kind of thinking and a, and a certain kind of mind to... Uh, 
to do that. I, I you know, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, it's hard to do. Okay. And, and I don't know that it's always liter- uh, literarily or financially rewarding to write that story. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for Neil here without his permission. I don't think he's saying that's the only thing science fiction should do. I think no. he's saying it's one of the things that science fiction used to do that it does less of these days. And to, to come back to the difference between John and I about the singularity book. And so if you if you take that argument, so maybe there's some kid who's in middle school is going to buy this book and he's going to read Charlie Strauss's story and say, holy crap, I'd love to – I'd love to be in a uh, interstellar ship the size of a Coke can, but before I get there, <laughs> yeah, we have to figure out how to how to map the human brain so I can get uploaded because that's the only, that's the first step. And so, and matter of fact, once you upload the human brain and put it in a computer, well, then you can shoot a Coke can into the stars because even if it takes a gajillion years, you're a, you're a you know simulated person in a in a Coke can that size. So anyway, the point here is that the kinds of of inspiration that may be uh, more feasible than space exploration is the the exciting a uh, kid who who thinks maybe someday they, hey I heard they mapped the genome maybe we can map the human brain next and you know if that happens you know I, I think that some of these barriers to the singularity fall away or at least are not quite so high. But I'm guessing that neither of you write fiction with that in the forefront of your mind. <laughs> I think Jim does it more than I do. Uh, um, I, you know, I, I tend to, I often feel I'm a, uh, uh, really pretty much a disappointment as a science fiction writer. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, and I, I, and I wear the clothes sometimes, but I, I don't know if I can, uh, you know, carry it off in, in the way that my forebears have, have done. Um, so, um, you know, I, I guess I, I would. I, that's one reason I make the argument that the, that the House of Science Fiction is large, and that that there there certainly should be that story. Uh, those stories should be in it. And right. I would very much regret. I think Stevenson's. You know, sounds like a, a uh, again a worthy enterprise to promote that. But I also think that there's a lot of other kinds of things that that that. And, and I tend to use science fiction as a way of looking at people. Um, mm, right. And and uh, um, you know. Uh, Jim, I think, is a little more, you know, able to to imagine uh, uh, speculative futures than, than I am. Is that right, Jim? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I could hear some of the M. Don Harrison uh, talk earlier on, and I and I agree. I, in some ways, I think, though, John, that y- you know, your y- your implementation of that model is is perfectly good and uh i mean maybe harrison's a little more tech oriented than you but you have a degree in physics <laughs> yeah. and and i i don't think there's anything wrong i mean i don't think it's your natural it's your natural style but on the other hand one of the things that's happened over your career is that you've tried different things and this moon thing that's ongoing here is uh is i think the the marriage of uh, character fiction with cool ideas and so well, I, would, I, 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 would, I certainly am trying hard to you know get the science part of it uh, to at least be reasonably credible but I do right. have the what you said earlier I think is something that bears is born in upon me as I write this book is that it, in some ways it's an old fashioned book you know it's like a Le Guin novel okay uh, uh, not and I love Le Guin okay uh, yeah. but 
Let's not you know, say that uh, with a note in our voice. <laughs> no, but but you know, it's like uh, in some ways, it's like the dispossessed, which I think is a great novel. But you know, as an extrapolation of the way humans will be living in in the future, I'm not sure if it if it makes much sense. You know, right? Well, uh, I mean, that, that, that's what I think Le Guin does, and I think it's what Mike Harrison does. Is when when you talk about the schism between literary fiction, which uses science fictional tropes, and science fiction, which uses engineering tropes, you can do both in the same novel. Uh, right. and, and, and sort of get away with it. I mean, one of the things, Jonathan and I had a, we were, we had a couple of conversations about this tendency right now, it's a current trend in science fiction, to do the solar system, to yeah. figure out, okay, yeah. we're not going to figure out any kind of feasible right. way of faster than light travel, which is fictionally viable. So let's yeah. just figure out, like Stan Robinson does in 2312, what we can do with the solar system, and, and, and Paul McCauley and Al Reynolds and all sorts. Um, Jim but, Kelly's writing a whole series of these solar system stories. Yeah. You're doing yeah, solar system are. stories. Okay. Yeah. And, and science fictionally, that seems rational. That seems, ex- uh, to, to coin a term which is never going to be used again, extrapolatively responsible. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We can understand how we can get there from here. Uh, but on the other hand, um, Mike Harrison is writing this thing that takes place on a distant planet uh, a city called Sodad, and it's light years from Earth. It has no connection. His All his cultural references are to Portuguese rap music and crap like that. Stuff that he, <laughs> you know he's listening to while he's writing it. And yep. it works. It, you know, it, it works at that level because, as, um, as, as John mentioned earlier, there is a convention in science fiction writing. Singularity is a convention now. Whether right. it works or not, it's a convention. Right. Moon colonies are a convention. Mars colonies. Jonathan just did an anthology about yeah. Mars. Sure. Right. Uh, and Jim was in it. Um, <laughs> no, it was going to be in it. But um, yeah. it seems to me that Harrison, anyway, isn't about, this, isn't about the space opera elements of it anyway, Gary. He's about the poetry of space opera. Right. Yeah. You oh, know? Very... I mean, and he's, he's the great poet of space opera in some ways. And, and you know, he, he builds the most beautiful, evocative, emotional scenes. But it's not about the technology. I mean, there's really... On some level, there's nothing more. more there's nothing more science fictional about the Kefahuchi tract elements of the light books than there is in the non-Kefahuchi tract elements of it. Mm. You know, it's just him doing that thing he does so well. Then we mm. react on a level, but he's not extrapolating science at all. I mean, this is where the. I mean, arguably, the the interest in the in you know, within the solar system stuff is it does give a side of science fiction, a kind of plausibility or possibility, I guess. You know, where you can sit there and you can go, well, okay, I don't really believe we'll ever leave the solar system in any significant uh, way. I don't believe fast and light travel is going to be you know, proven, certainly not within my lifetime or my great-grandchildren's or great-great-great-grandchildren's lifetime. But maybe it's possible, you know, we could get people to Mars and we could, sure. could mm-hmm. populate some kind of canyon there and put a roof over it. You know, don't know that we're ever going to quite bombard the you know the surface with ice comets so that it builds up its own atmosphere uh-huh. and all that stuff. But we could go there, we could do it. It's feasible, and there's certainly something about that venture that I find admirable because it's kind of taking back a little bit of the gr- lost ground of science fiction. I mean, the whole thing with the singularity is it's it amongst other things is it's it's reclaiming or or. Uh, protecting the idea of the sense of wonder because you read some of these stories and they're like, oh my God, yep. you know, like, wow. And we, we've seen the real world space program to some degree kind of 
grind to a, a, a halt. And you, you, know, you look at these the photos coming back from Mars, from the previous generations of landers and everything, and you're going, it's kind of like Arizona, but it really wants to kill you. We don't really want to go there. I mean, not really. Um, and so having something that keeps that kind of, that element of romance, because the the frontier element of science fiction is, is, is its romantic element. And so being able to go out there and have the romance that kept alive, and to some degree Stan does it, even though, I mean, I have to say, I don't know if you guys have read, uh, John and Jimmy, you read 2312. He does like over, I mean, yes, he's 300 years in the future, but he overstuffs it a little bit. I, even as I'm reading, I'm going, this is amazing. I'm going, do I really believe anyone's going to build a city on the surface on rails. of Mercury? On yeah. rails, on the surface of Mercury. I mean, I love yeah. it. I love the idea. It right. sends chills down my spine. But I don't think it's ever going to happen. Right. I don't, you know, but right. it, but it gives you something back about the possibility of science fiction. I mean, uh, I'm less attracted to Neil Stevenson's idea of science fiction having a mission, um, right. just because I'm, I don't think that's a necessary thing. I don't think it has to have a mission to have value, but I do think it has to have uh, it has to have its its own dreams and its own uh, belief in a future. I mean, you're talking Jim about not not simply writing. Not depressing because I, I, I balk against it, but certainly write about futures you don't want to live in. Um, right. I think it's essential that we do have that counterweight to it. The thing that does say that yes, we can go into, uh, you know, we could go to the moon. I mean, yeah, we could go to the moon, and we, sure. we we could do something great going to the moon, and that is inspirational in its own way and makes it worth doing and really engaging. I guess. You know, there are people who still want to go to the moon and colonize it. I mean, I've sure. actually been doing lots of research about this, okay? And yeah. there's a whole uh, institute in Japan that's looking into trying to create uh, self-sustaining closed environments that are completely mm. – a complete ecology that mm. doesn't need to have uh, you know air or water brought in from the outside, that doesn't turn into poisonous air, mm. uh, you know, eventually. And it's hard – It's it, they can't do it yet, okay? It's really hard to do. And uh, but they're you know they're doing this research and and uh, you know it has this immediate applicability if you ever did want to create a uh, you know a, a biosphere closed biosphere in, in a place like the moon or Mars so um, so in other words I think it is it is possible that this could happen I think there's going to be a lot of other problems I think human beings will have to be altered uh, genetically in order to survive. I mean, Jim wrote a wonderful story about this called breakaway back down a long time ago, but, uh, about the, you know, how going into space is not going to be the simple minded, uh, we won't be able to stay the same and live yeah. in space. Yeah. Mm, right. uh, but, but I, in other words, I'm saying that, that I think that this is, this is, uh, something that still could happen, but even if it can't happen and here's, here's what I think, and this is not any kind of original idea, but, uh, the idea that you can use this kind of, a speculation as a source for uh, other kinds of thought. And for me, I mean, I'm writing about uh, politics, mm -hmm. sexual right. and otherwise. Okay. Right. And, and, uh, and, you know, that's what Le Guin does. That's, that's where she's been a heavily influence on me is that, you know, the dispossessed is about politics. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it has actually a whole interesting thing about, you know, what instantaneous physics that the main character Shevik is trying to discover but uh, and also the politics of of uh, scientific research, where there's a jealousies, petty jealousies between individual human scientists. But uh, but, you know, she's also all about, uh, you know, this idealistic vision of anarchism versus a kind of, you know, liberal capitalism. Uh, and yeah. 
And uh, um, I know I, I mean I think that's a worthy thing. Worthy, you could say. Well, could she write that story in in the contemporary world as a as a realistic novel? I don't know. You know, it seems to mm. me harder to do. So so this is a. I mean, this is science fiction has been doing this since Wells. Okay, mm, right. Wells, you know, Wells did most of his books are this kind of thing. They're not really about predicting the future. No. Uh, they're about you know speculating about what could be but also what is so at any rate uh i don't know where i'm going with this it's just <laughs> i basically to say that i don't know that that science fiction necessarily has to i mean i think it it, it a, a, is obliged to try to make it as as uh plausible as possible and 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 to envision things that actually could happen yeah. but also i think it's a tool for for understanding other things yeah you know it's this this whole thing that the benford you know argument about he likes science fiction with the net up, you know, or or, uh, or or mundane science fiction, which was hooted off the stage, but which actually is is in fact, I mean, I would call it righteous extrapolation. I mean, this is what there, you know, the if if you want to have a kind of genre, the genre of righteous extrapolation is you, you, yeah, you can go to the moon, you can go to Mars, and 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 certainly technologically. No question you could do it. The The question is not a question of the technology, but a question of allocation of resources. It's it's economics, which science fiction always gets a D minus in, you know. Uh, right. uh, I mean, when you talk about politics, I mean, a good illustration, I think, of John's point is because I've been doing a lot of work with 50s science fiction. And in Poland, Kornblitz, The Space Merchants, is now regarded by a lot of people as a classic. When they try to deal with the same political issues in a mainstream novel, they right. came out with a novel called Presidential Year, which nobody remembers at all. <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, why do people read Philip K. Dick? It's not because he predicts the future. <laughs> uh, he's not real good at that, you know. Uh, but Martian Time Slip is, a, is some kind of crazy great novel. Uh, but you I, know. Th I, think, I think the argument that defines science fiction, when you talk about Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which is also one of my favorite novels, is – and this is this is sound like sounding like a very academic point. There's a huge difference between possible and not impossible. And science yep. fiction has historically defined itself as not impossible, not necessarily likely, not that we'll get there, but that it's not impossible. And right. the world of the dispossessed is not an impossible world. It may not be a likely world. We may not figure out how we can get the world of Mike Harrison's light or empty space is not necessarily possible by our current standards, but it's not impossible by our current physics and understanding of the world. Yeah. Right, and that's a useful distinction. And science fiction vibrates between those two poles, I think. You know, I think the, right. the near future, you know, uh, this is really going to happen to you kids kind of, yeah, this is possible. And the not impossible, well, okay, Star Trek is not impossible maybe. Or maybe you know, if you if you wave your hands a whole lot and try to you know, explain some complex interactions between wormholes and you know and exotic matter, yeah, it's not impossible. So I mean, I think it's interesting that that but that, and it's what's interesting to me is that it's 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 as likely to get a sense of wonder from a possible story. As it is from a not impossible story, but I think that a lot of science fiction goes to the not impossible uh, pole because it's easier, they th or it appears to be easier to get a sense of wonder. But you know what? We're wised up to some of that stuff now, and it's 
it's not as easy to get a sense of wonder about something we're pretty sure is it's not impossible, but it's not freaking likely. So why are we talking <laughs> about it? Not likely, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, we, we all recognize, uh, uh, there's a novel I reviewed a few years ago by a well-known science fiction writer, multiple Hugo nominee, and the, the moon is struck by a comet, and like an hour and a half later, pieces of the moon are falling to Earth. And I tried to work out the math of that. I tried <laughs> yeah, to work out the big, I talked fast. to Joe Hall, but it doesn't work out. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Well, you know, uh, it's funny, this last half hour's conversation is a bulletproof demonstration that all four of us are stone science fiction geeks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because this is a conversation that would never happen between, uh, you know, the kind of mainstream, right? I mean, imagine Cormac McCarthy and Juno Diaz sitting down to talk about something. Okay. This, this would not happen, okay? We are... We are so far, so far into geekdom here that you know we're 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 like uh, medieval scholars with the angels on the head of the pin here as regards the 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 real world's vision of what science fiction is and ought to be. Uh, right. Uh, and just and you know, footnote, just a footnote to defend Juno, who's been at the last okay. been a couple of reader cons. He's a geek. He is totally He's with one us. Of us. On this. I don't yeah. really know. I was just thinking, you know, the people who read Juno Diaz, I don't think are are capable of no. Of, on, of caring about any of this stuff at all, uh, so uh, uh, so I mean I, I think that demonstrates there's there still is this there's a kind of science fiction where right. people like us care deeply about this yeah. stuff, and right. there's there's all this other stuff that is published as science fiction. It's very popular. It is science fiction by some definition, but it these people you know it, this is not on the radar. No. Right. Yeah. Right. And the same thing is true of almost all science fiction movies, I imagine. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 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 So, uh, well, maybe on that cheery note, since we have reached just over the hour long limit, we might sort of begin to wind up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we try to keep it because there are podcasts out there in the world, gentlemen, that go for hours and hours, but honestly, I'm not sure it's fair to the world. No. <laughs> but we're so smart. We're so sharp. We're so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's not that we're not enjoying ourselves. But I guess we should say that Digital Rapture is out in uh, good bookstores everywhere and that, that, that both of you will be in Chicago for Worldcon and will, will be willing to sign as many hundreds of thousands of copies as people are willing to buy. Well, and, you know, and eventually you'll be able to uh, upload Digital Rapture into your little Coke can of Computronium. And right. uh, uh, you won't actually – won't have uh, – you actually put a lot of copies into it. And so it's going to come as an e-book then. <laughs> yeah. It's going to yeah. come as a way, universe. Somebody, I said, somebody emailed me saying, "Are we going to do a?" Because I did this book of 1950s science fiction novels. Somebody emailed me saying, "Can we do a group signing?" And I said, "They're basically dead." <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, look, isn't there a Philip K. Dick robot head out there somewhere? Uh, yeah, really. I mean, nobody sure. knows where though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if there's that, then why can't we sort of, I don't know, get someone to sit there and be faux Robert Heinlein and sign it? But you guys should think about the Greg Egan idea. Which one? Yeah. Get get Greg get somebody to show up and sign for Greg Egan at your uh, digital rapture signing. <laughs> that would be easy to do. Actually, get a woman to sign up as Greg Egan. That would be good, actually. I, I know several people who have been accused of being uh, Greg Egan and that it was a pseudonym. But uh... Well, and there was that photograph that was going around of someone else named Greg Egan, right? Is yeah, right? yeah. There, there's a doctor, there's, a, there's an engineer or something, I think, from uh, Adelaide or somewhere, uh, much older than Greg, 
and people came across the photo because he happens to the same yep. name. It's him. Mm-hmm. But it's not him. Because, I mean, I know that um, he, that Greg, who's from here, and lives probably about five kilometers from where I am, I think, roughly. Wow. Um, though I've never met him or seen him. But he's a, you know, he worked in medical, medical computing, I think, for a long time. And, yeah, I, mean, I, know, I, know, I know his English teacher, the guy who taught him at school. And somewhere around here, I have photocopies of all of his old high school newsletters where he wrote novels and wrote diatribes about Asimov and stuff. So I think it's a, all a, 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 a huge conspiracy, uh, carefully <laughs> constructed, okay, that to make us believe that there is such a person as, as Greg Egan. I, you know, yeah. I, I, well, uh, my, th- my theory is he's really Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> well, there you go. Actually, it's a uh, it's a good gig if you can get it, you know, to be the Thomas Pynchon of science fiction. So, <laughs> well, on that cheery note, I think we might uh, we might end wind up. Thank you very right. much, Jim and John. It's been a pleasure to have you both here. So uh, fun. <laughs> thank you. Actually, really. Uh, oh, we could go on for another hour easily. Well, we yeah, yeah we. We are. We have many opinions. <laughs> well, let me ask just quickly. Actually, what's the next book then? I mean, obviously, John, you're writing a novel, and Jim, the short story is coming out. But is there another anthology in the works? You know, no, we, we did three anthologies time. in about a ten month period, and we sort of reached a little burnout there. And so there may be one down the line, but there's nothing immediately in the works. Okay. We need to is have an fair? idea, Jonathan. Quick, give us an idea. We'll take it. To <laughs> All right. This is give a This is not using. No, no, this is a competitive I'm keeping them. Borges-esque, no. Surely, t- if you're going to do it, it would surely have to be tip trees. I'm, I'm serious about Borges-esque. <laughs> I was talking to Ted Chang about exhalation, and that's his Borges story. There you go. Yeah, it makes sense. There you go. Name a second one, then you've got a book. Yeah. <laughs> you need 10 or 12 more. Everybody uh, in science fiction has written Borges. Okay. There actually probably been a lot of them uh, if you poke around a little bit. You know, I think uh, uh, we already used one of Borges, the Borges stories in uh, Secret History. That was Cardinal yes, Schultz's The Nine Million Names of God. That's a Borges story. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, that's in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's an anthology right there. Okay, you've got to start it now. Uh, <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> Look, okay. check I have in to with say you next week to see how far along you. <laughs> well, you'll be able to report from Worldcon. Though I have to say, given that it's been, is it 15 years since the last novel, John? That is. It's really pretty uh, pretty long time. Yeah. It would be good but, to see uh, the new one I, instead. If I but I, I, I've hit, I've hit 92,000 words now, so it's it's like more than just an oh, idea. Yeah. That's a significant chunk of book. Well, hopefully, over sometime in the next year or so, we'll see it out in the light of day, and we'll be. Yeah. <laughs> He's going, you wild optimist. But <laughs> on that note, maybe we'll see you. Will we see you, gentlemen, in Toronto as well? Uh, I'm afraid I won't be there. No, no, sorry. me neither. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> we are science fiction writers. That's oh, right. Not oh, right, oh, 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 <laughs> You're science fiction writers who have extended the reach of the genre to include people who might show up at world fantasy. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fairly sure I've seen you both there. Yeah, yeah but I will see you both at uh, in, fourth year. You're in my hometown in a couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 That's good. Okay. All right, guys. Okay, well, thank you very much again. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Really Bye-bye. fun. Bye. 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 Bye.